Coming up next on The Jeff Crilly Show, she is a true fighter in the legal world. You're going to meet Nikki Grody next. Many are predicting that the worst is yet to come, which is unfortunate, said one person here. Until now, they've enjoyed the reputation of being the nation's icebox. Watched a burglar in his home this morning by webcam. As a journalist of over 25 years, stories are what make my world turn. Reporting live from the Dallas Newsroom tonight, Jeff Crilly, Fox 4 News. But in 2008, I took the jump from my familiar life and started a PR firm from my home. We're talking about anyone with a camcorder like the one I'm using becomes a television network. We started slowly growing the company and we now have over a hundred clients and we've branched into the world of live digital broadcasting. I now own eight different TV studios and have a huge team. And the stories that I now get to share are sometimes the most important of my life. Life has a funny way of coming around full circle. This is The Jeff Crilly Show. Well, I have to be honest, I meet a lot of people through this show, and I've met a lot of lawyers over the years who don't like the law. They hate their lives. They woke up and they're in their mid-40s and they say, why did I ever get into this? But Nikki Grody is my guest. She's with Grody Law, and she loves her life. I do, <laughs> I do, yes. You're a fighter, so tell us, uh, where, where did this fight come from? Well, I've always been an aggressive person. Um, I, I think I came by it naturally. But um, growing up, I was taught a good work ethic. I was taught to try to win um, in basketball. I failed out of, excuse me, I fouled out of every game except one uh, because, you know, they had the ball. I wanted the ball. I went to get the ball. Um, so recognizing my desire to compete and win and just you know, get that aggression out. Um, I became a, a kickboxer and happened to win the 1992, yes, that dates myself, um, <laughs> Oklahoma State Championship. Wow. I'm from Weatherford, uh, Texas. I've always lived there except for when I went to college. And so the Oklahoma thing was simply a, here's a tournament, go fight in it. Um, and so I just, it's always been me. I'm, I'm loud, I'm opinionated, I'll, I'll tell you how I feel. And that is part of that aggression on, I, I want to get this done. I want to do this. Absolutely. And you also uh, were very successful in the rodeo arena. We've got some pictures of you. What uh, what age were you at this point? So I was a senior in high school. So okay. I was uh, 16 for part of the year and 17. I graduated early. And this photo that you see is called pole bending. Um, it's where you have a series of poles that you uh, weave your horse through and, and it's all a timed event. I also did barrels uh, and something that most people don't know of, it's called steer and decorating, uh, which is where you're in a chute, they let the cow out and you and your horse chase that cow until you bend down and pick a ribbon off of its back. Wow. It's a little less dangerous for girls than, than other sports that guys do similar. And so I won my first Weatherford High School Rodeo Buckle with 1.052 seconds, no barely beating the girl that was 1.057 seconds. So wow! But it speaks to your tenacity and your you know the discipline it takes to get you know that successful. Thank you, thank you. I, it was certainly fun and uh, and a very rewarding thing. My father was a team roper, and so we've always and he was also a veterinarian. So we grew up uh, showing cattle. I showed dairy cattle. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a family tradition to show cattle. Um, and so I just kind of followed in my father's footsteps on, you know, loving animals, spending all my time with animals. And that's how I ended up, you know, wanting to compete in, 
in barrel racing and, and other things. So I was champion of my high school, champion cowgirl. Um, don't know that I, I had it in me to continue that, and I, I got in college. And so uh, rodeo was not an option after that. Now, when did you decide you wanted to go into law? I thought I wanted to be an FBI agent when Waco happened. I was driving by uh, between Weatherford and College Station, and I saw the smoke and then, of course, learned about it on the news. And I thought, gosh, wouldn't that be neat to just take the puzzle pieces to try to figure out what happened and put them together. And so I knew that you have to be a lawyer or a few other things in order to uh, get into the FBI. But I ended up starting my family early, uh, early in college and moving to Virginia or anywhere else was not an option because we were going to raise our son in Weatherford in in the town where we both grew up. And so, um, I then went, because I was an English major, I knew you had to have really good grades to get into law school. And early in life, I witnessed a murder trial at the courthouse in my small town. And I remember Max Smith, the district attorney at that time, um, telling a story about a preacher who'd been murdered. And I, I was impressed by the fact that he could tell the story to the jury in a way that made me feel like I knew him. Like I, I, you know, knew this man and, and uh, something that has always stuck in my mind is that Max Smith took the bloody shoes of the preacher and he set them on the table for the jury to see. And I'd never seen anything like this. I mean, I think I was 11 or 12 years old. Why my mother took me to a murder trial, I don't have a clue. But it, it really impressed me on how he told the story in a way that you were persuaded. Like I wanted to stand up and cheer. And so as an English major, a person who loves to write stories, a person who loves to kind of put puzzle pieces together, I decided being a prosecutor is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so in college, I, you know, you have to get good grades uh, to, to get into law school. So I knew it was best in English. So I, I picked English and I charged forward and then decided I would go to law school. Um, law is one of the ways you get to be in the FBI. So I thought, well, I'm setting myself up for the just in case. Um, but I loved being a lawyer early on and, you know, being a prosecutor was my dream job. So I just, I fought until that opportunity came open and I've been a prosecutor for about 17 years of my 22 year career. And it's one of the best careers that anybody could have. Mm. Okay. We have a picture of you with the late, uh, George HW Bush. And I want you to tell us about this picture. So I was an intern in his Houston office after he was president. We were, uh, certain students were in the Eisenhower Leadership Development Program. And so that's how I was picked to be an intern. It was offered to those students. And so once a week, I drove down the almost hour and 45 minute drive to go to his office in in Houston. And it was our job to prepare documents and review and catalog documents for for the Bush Library. So I got to read... Uh, Christmas cards from Demi Moore and Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it was just, you know, so neat to me. We're putting this thing together that, I mean, I had no idea they had to save their letters and everything they received. So you get to see all these crazy things that people send him. And I just really enjoyed it. It was a, it was an interesting look into the life of a man that you don't get close to unless you have that opportunity. And I do have to tell you one story. So we were, we were a group of interns and we got to spend the day with him. And I had seen him speak at a previous engagement at, at A&M. And of course we all had front row tickets as the intern. And so I, 
it was the thousand points of light speech. Mm. And so when I saw him the day that, that the interns were spending time with him, I, I went up and I stuck my hand out. I said, I was so impressed by your thousand points of light speech. I mean, it just hit me. And he went, aw, and kissed me straight on the forehead. And I was like, did anybody get a picture of that? <laughs> like, surely Secret Service, right, had, had some kind of pictures going. Nobody got it. Oh, no. But it was just this grandfatherly, like, you're, you're such a cute kid, you know, because I, yeah. I was 26 years old, and, and I was, everything's about you, right? When you're growing up and you're learning and you're meeting new people, it's about how can I relate to them. So later in life, I realized that that kiss was was probably a, oh, aren't you so cute and naive? And, you know, I'm the former president of the United States and you're telling me that you're impressed. But I thought, you know, it, it all relates back to who we are. And he made a big, he made a big impression on me. And uh, it was really, really a great experience. Wow. Okay. We've got another picture of you with uh, Justice Alito. Yes. Uh, tell us about that. So uh, law students, after they graduate, are invited by some of their schools to go in a group to the Supreme Court of Texas excuse me, the Supreme Court of the United States and get sworn in. Um, that perk allows you to sit in special seating if you ever want to watch a Supreme Court argument. Uh, but this trip was very special to me. I got to take my son who was in the picture, his name's Tucker, and my father got to go. And as my hero, best friend, just the person that I was closest to, he went as well as my mother. And it was just very surreal you know, here we are in the Supreme Court of the United States, and they send a justice in to speak to us and meet us. And I got to, I got to show that to my son. So it was, it was really, really nice. He was a very, he was very kind and generous with his time. And uh, speaking of your dad, we have a picture of you and your dad, and I want you to talk about this picture and why this has uh, shaped your journey. This is probably one of the biggest um, turning points in my life. My father, this is Gary Grody, Dr. Gary Grody, who was a veterinarian in Weatherford. Um, he was on a guided fishing tour in Port Aransas, and there are a lot of sandbars there. The, the driver was Coast Guard certified, and he hit a sandbar. Um, so my father, who was a rather large man, 6'5", you know, 320 plus pounds, um, was ejected from the boat and he landed on the sandbar and he broke his back. Um, that left him a, a quad, an incomplete quad from here down so he could use his arms but not his, his chest and his body like that. So uh, when we got the call, obviously we rushed down there. Uh, the doctor said that they, it was a miracle that he was alive and that he would never walk again. And for this tall man, you know, to be now in a wheelchair where I could see the top of his head after he got out. It was a very realistic view of this is what life's about. You know, he, he, this happened to him and we have to deal with it. He required 24 hour care. Uh, he lived two and a half years before he passed away um, from complications, you know, of, of being a quadriplegic. And that whole experience caused me to appreciate the moments in life that we pass up and that we should take. So I spent as much time with him in that 2.5 or two and a half years as I possibly could. Uh, he was just a, a funny guy and he had a great sense of humor through all of it and, and did not seem to have the emotions that the rest of us in the family had. You know, it changed all of our lives, just not him. Mm -hmm. And so that picture was when he had just gotten out of rehab at Baylor in Dallas. 
we had to go and learn how to walk with him on a sidewalk and how to, you know, how to get his wheelchair. He had an electric wheelchair, but how to get up on it and be safe crossing traffic and being in parks. So that was in the park in Dallas uh, where they have the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was just a fun day, but it was, it was rough because that was right when he was getting out. We were ready to bring him home. And there's just so many things different. You know, a car is different. Your home is different. Going to the store is different. Going out to eat is different. So it just made a huge impact on my life. And having, there were many issues that came up, not only in his accident, which was, for example, the medical power of attorney became just critical. The directive to physicians um, was, was very important as well. And so having those documents in place did, in fact, make some of the decisions we have to make easier. We had to make easier. Um, But then when he passed, we had a lot of estate and trust issues that while they were designed to make things really simple and easy for us, they made things extremely more complicated. And so there were some legal issues that were dealt with and it took a very long time. And so as a result of that in my new law practice, I am hoping to help people prepare those very important documents in order to save their children or perhaps make it easier from an already difficult situation if someone's in the hospital or or is, you know, in their last moments so that families aren't crumbling around what to do or who makes the decision. And so that's going to be part of my new new practice. I've I've been doing a little while, but I intend to uh, do a lot more of it because I like to help people in, in those ways. We've got another picture of you in front of the courthouse. I believe this is the courthouse in Parker County. Yes, is that sir. Right? That is my hometown courthouse. <laughs> so tell us about your years in the prosecutor's office and how that helps you serve your clients today. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, being a prosecutor was my dream job. Uh, starting out as a misdemeanor prosecutor, I had an amazing uh, boss, John Forrest, in, in Parker County. We had we worked in that exact courthouse. Um, the acoustics were kind of bad because it was built a long time ago. But it was, it was amazing. I got to prosecute a man who left and abandoned about 90 animals, uh, and they suffered and died. And boy, I made sure he went to jail. Um, and then I happily advanced to the, to the felony crimes in the district attorney's office. There I worked for Don Schnebly. Had a great team of lawyers that I learned from because I was the baby lawyer. And they really taught me how to be a presence, to, to, to be a lawyer like I want to be and to tell the story to the jury like I want to tell it. And there were certain cases, obviously, that that touched my heart and I'll, and those victims will stay with me forever. It was an amazing career, um, but it is hard on you as a human seeing the worst part of people's lives, seeing what crime can do uh, and how it's the ripple effect of not just that victim. Let's take a murder case, for example. If someone's killed, it affects their mother and their the rest of their family and their friends and their coworkers. And so when you can see that, it's it motivates you even more because you can help these people. Yes. And in a murder trial, you can do your best to speak for the victim who can't be there to speak for themselves. And so I love telling jury stories about people, who they were, why they should care about this person obviously to seek justice. If they don't think they did it, they have to make the right decision. If they think they did it and committed the crime, then then they have to make that decision. But more importantly, they have to decide what the punishment is. Mm-hmm. And that often affects jurors as well. 
um, you know, if it's a murder case, a child sex case, these people aren't used to hearing it. Juries don't know how to process it as they're going through it and seeing photographs and hearing testimony of children. And so once they give their verdict, no matter what it is, there's not really a system of decompressing or, or like a wrap up. You know, they spent all this time with these people discussing very difficult things within this jury room. And I always find the emotions that they go through interesting because you can talk to a jury after a trial. And sometimes they pick up on things that you were like, gosh, I wish I'd have picked up on that. Or they misunderstood something that you just thought you were doing the greatest job of driving this point home, right? But the best part is when you can see that they care mm. that their jury made a verdict, uh, that their verdict made a difference to the family or to the victim if they're still with us. Absolutely. So, but again, that weighs heavy on my heart. Mm. And I carry the weight of the, sh of the world on my shoulders on if I work another hour, if I work the whole weekend, maybe I can do something that makes this case go my way or go the state's way. And so I worked a lot and I probably worked too much. And I, I took in those victims and the, the problems and I tried to solve it. But I know as an attorney, I can't solve it. I can just work on the after part, what makes the rest of the story. How does this happen? Sure. So it was, it was extremely rewarding. Nikki, we've got a newspaper article, and this was a significant verdict that, that you uh, were awarded. Tell us about this, this case. Talk about luck right out of law school. So I worked for George Parker Young. Um, <clears throat> he was a well-known plaintiff's attorney. He still is in Fort Worth. And he hired me. Uh, I was number one in my law school class, so he kind of he kind of was was trying to get me from the beginning. So that was really nice and, and an honor. But he was known for uh, going after doctors or hospitals or insurance companies for making decisions that affected people's lives in a way that it arguably shouldn't have. And so the case Pibus versus Cigna was a story about a man who passed away after being sent home without oxygen. And the nurse who worked for Cigna was supposed to have ordered him oxygen and, and guaranteed the doctor that everything that he had at the skilled nursing facility, he would have at home. And they forgot or didn't order oxygen. It was in a snowstorm. He got home at seven. The ambulance wouldn't leave their oxygen. They're like, home health is supposed to live, deliver it. No one came. Mm. So by the next day, a family member recognized that he was blue, uh, took him back to the hospital, and he was dead within, I want to say, seven days. So as a third chair, meaning there's two main lawyers, and then I'm the lawyer that's helping uh, in charge of all the evidence, you know, trying to make points, help them remember things, preparing mock juries. Um, I got to sit at the table with them. And here in Dallas, I got to tell the story of how this nurse was given financial bonuses when she denied care to someone. And that is illegal in Texas. That is practicing law without being a doctor. And so with the lawsuit, which was the first lawsuit under the Texas HMO Liability Act, we won. And it's the, I mean, the first plaintiff's verdict under this law where so many plaintiffs had, had lost before. So the verdict was for $13 million. Uh, 10 of that was punitive damages to punish Cigna for engaging in these actions. And so that was, you know, to be to be a first year lawyer at your first trial ever sitting and hearing the jury say $13 million. Wow. It was it was phenomenal. And I may never get that opportunity again. Right. But I learned so much from it. I learned about the jurors. Uh, I learned about the thought process they go through. 
we had a phenomenal judge who controlled the courtroom in a way that didn't let a lot of shenanigans in, yeah. which is what's, you know, you don't want the shenanigans. You don't need the drama. Just tell us the story. Let us decide what happened. Let us give our verdict and let's all go home. But it has to be, you have to go through that process. It is, it is our rights as Americans to have a, a trial by jury. And so, you know, that they, it, the case didn't turn out so great for the family later, but I was long gone from that firm by then, but they did reach a settlement. And I do believe that, that it was, it was fair. Wow. And Nikki, you've received a lot of accolades over the years. One of the ones I know is near and dear to your heart is most influential woman of Parker County. Tell us about that. So, um, this picture is, uh, what I'm, this picture shows most of my favorite people, uh, Doug Wallace, who's a judge in Ellis County, Susan McCoy, who is a judge in Tarrant County, who also was one of my bosses in 2003, um, a great mentor. And then George Gallagher, he is a, a judge in Tarrant County as well. Gallagher is a criminal judge who I practiced in front of for three years. Uh, McCoy is a civil district judge who I have not practiced in front of, but a very, influ very influential person in my life. And then uh, Judge Wallace and I tried a, a cold case arson, triple arson together. And so we got to be good friends in that process. And, and I was really proud to have the honor uh, getting also the Max Smith Extraordinary Attorney Award. Remember at the beginning of this, I told you Max Smith was the prosecutor that I watched in that murder trial. Sure. To receive an award and named after him was just such a compliment to me, sure. especially because of the small town connections. You know, his wife was my uh, French teacher growing up. I, I grew up with his daughter. And so all these connections just made me more proud to represent my, my community. You know, I'm a Parker County girl. I, I live in Tarrant County right now, but I will always be a Parker County girl. Wow. So it was very rewarding. So uh, Nikki, we only have a couple minutes left. I know you, we, we spent a lot of time talking about people uh, that you looked up to and, and shepherded you along the way. Now there's a whole uh, generation of young lawyers who I'm sure are looking to you. So what's your message to a young lawyer who really wants to make a difference? You know, it's funny you ask that because I have recently worked with two associates in the firm that uh, that I just left, and they are so eager to absorb information, and they are so eager to to learn about what's your opinion on this. Did I do this right? And so my biggest message to them is: do it like you want to do it as the person that you are. Don't try to mimic someone else. You can pick up tips. You know, you can steal a little something from somebody else's argument, but. You have to make it yours because if you're not passionate about it and you don't have some ownership of it, you're in the wrong job. You gotta love this job to do it. And I always think my, my favorite piece of advice to younger lawyers or, or to younger people in general is every person you meet in your life, there's, some gonna, there's gonna be some phenomenal people and you just know it when you see them, right? They're charismatic, they're nice, that you're drawn to them. Ask that person when you have a moment, what is the most important lesson or story that you could tell me as a young person that would help me in the future when I'm encountering an experience that may not be exactly like the one that they're telling you about, right? But there's a lesson in there. You know, um, work hard, focus on you. Don't focus on the coworkers and what they're doing, what they do and, and the effects of their job don't matter. You do your best on your case every day 
while taking care of yourself physically and mentally, right? Um, and don't worry about anybody else. You do your best and you can always lay your head down at night knowing that you did everything you could and, and you gave yourself to that client who deserves it. Wow, that's a great way to end this episode. We're going to also leave with your Facebook page. We're going to put that on the screen. Thank you so much for sharing your journey. And you're still a young woman. You've got a lot of miles left on this road. Uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for now. We'll see you next time.